Now hear the word of God from Revelations chapter 15 and 16. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, And they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. 
God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. This is the word of the Lord. Usually when you say, this is the word of the Lord, you're a little more excited. <laughs> what, what's going on? The last time I was up here, I got to talk about the, the seven trumpets. And uh, I'm afraid that now you're going to think I'm the judgment guy. I'm the wrath guy. I'm, I'm not. I'm just playing the hands that I was dealt, right? <laughs> playing the cards I was dealt. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Waypoint. How are you? Good morning. morning. My name is Eric Weiner. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint. It's, it's my honor and my privilege to, to preach on the seven bowls this morning. And let me tell you, working, working through these chapters this week has been overwhelming. When it's been said that understanding the Old Testament is paramount to wading through the deep waters of Revelation, that's no joke, right? I mean, I've been in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I've looked through Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the Psalms, Judges, Kings and Isaiah. And that's just the Old Testament. I mean, by Wednesday, my, my head just wanted to explode. just wanted to beat my head on my, on my desk because I'm like, how am I supposed to contain all of this? How am I supposed to teach and preach on all of this? And here we are this morning. This morning, we're jumping into the third and final judgment cycle. And if you remember, we, we've had the, the seven seals. And with the seven seals, we, we hear that there's this restraint to God's judgment. Revelation 6, 8 says, I looked... And there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Then with the, the seven trumpets, so we had the seven seals, then we had the seven trumpets, and John, John saw things progress to a third. We just heard a fourth, and now we have a third, a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the natural light gone. And we've said that with these cycles, it's, it's not what we're seeing, it's not, it's not a chronological unfolding of events. The, the word we've used is recapitulation, recapitulation, meaning it's the retelling of events from different angles, from different perspectives. And so what we see happening with the seven bowls is a different vantage point from what we've already seen already unfolding with the seven seals and with the seven trumpets. So there's overlap and we should recognize the similarities. I mean, for example, the first bowl and the first trumpet are affecting the land or being poured out on the land. With the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl, there's something going on in relation to the river Euphrates. And you can look at all of the different aligning bowls and trumpets and, and see, you can see overlap here. So there's similarities. There's similarities to the judgment. The judgment is progressing. But there's also important differences. And I think we're supposed to notice that. The, the most obvious difference is that the judgments are, are more encompassing. I mean, you've already, we've already kind of seen this progression. We go from a fourth to a third to total. But it's not just that it's worsening. I think there's also a quickening. I think we're also supposed to see a, a quickening, an eminence. And you see that in the literary design in the three cycles as they're unfolding. Let, let, let me recap this for you. 
In these different seven judgment cycles, there's a string of judgments and then there's these interludes. With the seven trumpets, for example, you've got a sequence of of four trumpet blasts and then an eagle flies by saying, whoa, whoa, whoa to the inhabitants of the earth because the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And if you're thinking, wow, that doesn't doesn't sound very good. We're we're tracking. We're on the same page. I, I always say if an eagle flies by saying, woe to you, you're in bad company. Right? You guys say that too. You know that saying. We, we have more trumpet blasts. So we have more trumpet blasts. And then in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, we have this long interlude. And you have this angel and the little scroll. And then two witnesses come. And there's, there's a severe earthquake that kills a tenth of the city. But 90% of the city gives glory to the God of heaven. And at some point you wonder, when's the seventh trumpet coming? We're, we're in trumpets. They're blasting. And, and there's this long interlude. The sixth trumpet happened at the end of Revelation 9, and then the seventh trumpet doesn't come until midway through chapter 11. In the section with the seven seals, you have the same thing. We're so, we're so easily distracted that we can miss this. At the end of Revelation 6, the sixth seal is opened, and John tells us about the earthquake and the sun turning black and the kings hiding in the caves. And then he jumps into seeing things about the 144,000 and the great multitude being clothed in white robes. And then Revelation opens with, when he opened the seventh seal, and we're like, oh yeah, I forgot. We were opening seals. When, when did that happen? These interludes seem to be communicating God's patient delay embedded in the text. Not only is there an intensification of God's judgment, there's less restraint, We're seeing that unfold with these judgment cycles. But we're also seeing another kind of progression. The delay, the interludes before the day of the Lord arrives are much shorter in the seven bowls. Meaning God's judgment is coming. God's people have been crying out for centuries saying, How long, O Lord? The Lord hears the cries of the martyrs. He knows the the cries of his people. People scoff at God's timeline. They say, look, Jesus said he was coming back soon. Where is he? Was he wrong? But the time is coming. And to some, the Lord will say, I have been waiting for millennia. How much longer did you need? So we are considering God's judgment again this morning. And I'm going to be jumping around a lot, so I I hope you can follow along with me. And I have five points this morning. The the first point is this. God's judgment deserves the backdrop of God's character. We shouldn't be considering God's judgment without thinking about who God is. And I said this three weeks ago. We cannot look at God's judgment isolated from God's character. The the angel says as much when affirming the judgments of God in Revelation 16.5. He says, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were. God is immutable, meaning he is unchanging in his character and in his will and in his promises. Who he is in blessing is who he is in judgment. We don't believe that God is is generally a nice guy. He can just sometimes be a little impulsive. No, no, no. That's not how we think about God. In Exodus 34, God reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, 
the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's tempting to ignore that last part. But this is who God is. This is who he says he is. A quick reading of this characterization of God will make you think he's angry and bent toward judgment. A careful reading will tell you that the duration of his love is radically disproportionate with his wrath. The duration of his love is radically disproportionate to his wrath. When we hear that God does not leave the guilty unpunished, we should say, good. That's good. God cares about justice more than we do. And he's not letting any, injustice go, any injustice go unpunished. A day of reckoning is coming. And when the Lord says that he's main, he maintains love to thousands, that could easily be translated as a thousand generations. But I don't think it means a literal thousand. I think a, a thousand means beyond measure. Today it would be appropriate for us to say that God's love goes to the gazillionth generation, but he visits generational sin to the third and fourth. In other words, God's love toward us is never exhausted. But what we see in Revelation 15 and 16 is that God's judgment is. God's judgment has an end date. And for many of you here this morning, God's wrath was dealt with a long time ago. Some of you some of you may think, God's wrath is still upon me. Maybe, maybe you haven't heard this before. I, I want you to think about this. L look at me. Maybe you've heard it, but you've never really heard it. It doesn't have to be. His wrath doesn't have to be. There's a scene in the silver chair in the Chronicles of Narnia series where a young girl named Jill, by way of bad decisions, finds herself alone in the forest, deathly thirsty, when she stumbles upon a stream. And this should be, this should be a hopeful moment for her. But instead, the moment stops her dead in her tracks. What she's experiencing is terror because a lion is before her, which of course we know, if you've read the story, that the lion is Aslan, the Christ-like figure in the whole world. But Aslan isn't like the stuffed animal in Calvin and Hobbes. His presence radiates holiness. If Jill were real, we'd say her fight or flight instincts are starting to kick in and she doesn't know what to do. When she hears the voice of Aslan say, are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, Jill said. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Asked Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Will you promise not to, to do anything if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. She starts to draw closer. Do you eat? Girls, she said. 
I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. We don't have a knowability problem. God makes himself and the way unto salvation knowable. Salvation comes by way of knowing the only one who can truly save, that is Jesus. We don't have a knowability problem. We have a desirability problem. We don't have an unwilling Savior. We are unwilling people who ignore our thirst, who trust our own sense of direction, and are determined to find another stream when there is no other stream to be found. God is who he says he is. He's the God who was and is and is to come. We can't change him. Second, God's judgment is proportional to, his, to, to our responsibility. God's judgment is proportional to our responsibility. When you listen to the first four bowls being poured out by the angels, enacting God's divine judgment, we ought to consider what this is truly revealing about who we are and who we were called to be. In Revelation 16, we get these, these plague-like judgments, just like Egypt experienced. Remember Egypt in the Exodus account, plague-like, plague-like judgments. There's a decreation going on here. But why? Why, why is there an undoing of creation? Why? The first bowl is, is poured out on the land, and, and sores break out on the people who had the mark of the beast. And then the second bowl is poured out on the sea, and the waters turn blood red. Everything in the sea is dead. The third bowl is poured out on the rivers and the springs, and they they become blood. The fourth bowl is poured out on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. This is provocative. It's symbolic language. And it's almost like the earth. The created order is rebelling against the ones who are tasked with tending it. From the very beginning, God created people to bear his image, to reflect what he is like to the rest of creation. And we're about to find out how we did. God has tasked people to fill the earth with his presence, being the physical representation of his goodness in all the earth. But instead of ruling, we subject ourselves to the beast of the field, And we become like the beast. We distort who God is. We disrupt the good order he has established. And we make make God unrecognizable in all of his creation. So here we see God using the natural world, the earth, the sea, the rivers, the sun, to pass judgment on those who have abused and defaced their calling. Revelation 16.2 says that those who experienced this judgment are those who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And so with like imagery, God is showing wicked humanity that the very things they were appointed to tend to and look after will be the very things that heap judgment upon them in their wickedness. And God is right to do it. 
Number three, God's judgment displays a richer love and compels us to love. It displays a richer love and it compels us to to love. To truly desire justice in the world, you must also desire judgment. For justice demands retribution. If God were indifferent toward wickedness in our world, we could not truly say he is love. We couldn't. If God is indifferent toward the Holocaust, if he's silent toward the treatment of the Uyghurs, if he weren't to hold people to account for apartheid, what would we say about God? That we cared more about justice? That we are more fair-minded, rational, capable gods? Could we say that? God must care about justice because God, God is a God of love. Then consider Revelation 15 too. Let's consider what's going on here. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. What was their victory? What was their victory? What is our victory? Revelation 12, 11 says, they triumphed over him, him being Satan who leads the world astray. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is the kind of persecution going on. The people of God experience persecution by the hands of the evil one and his oppressive spiritual powers at work in the world. And everyone who has devoted their allegiance to this wicked devil will give account. Revelation 15 and 16 invites us to praise God for his just judgments. It says, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. This doesn't mean we celebrate the demise of wicked people. In fact, it's the opposite. God deals with wickedness by offering reversal. And he calls us to imitate him in that. To imitate him in the reversal that he's bringing about. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian, has seen wickedness in the world firsthand by way of his nation being mauled by outlaw Serbian forces. And in reflecting on these realities, Volf argues that it's easy for us sitting in the comforts of our living rooms in the West, to come up with high-minded theories of nonviolence. Our villages have never been burned. Our brothers have not had their throats slit. Our sisters have not been assaulted. But his had. So how do we avoid becoming vengeful people, but rather a community of love? How do we do that? Here's what Volf says. He says, The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. When a confidence in God's fierce opposition to all human injustice enters our hearts, do you know what happens? We have a reason to forsake our savage impulses and to love our enemies. We learn to deal with people how God has dealt with us by loving our enemies and laying down our lives for them. That was our victory. This is how we overcome the snares of the evil one so that we do not give a foothold to him in our hearts. This is our victory. We embrace the the way of love at great cost to to us. We embrace the the way of love at great cost to us for the great gain of others. 
for the benefit of others. Number four, God's judgment was swallowed up in Jesus. God's judgment was swallowed up in Jesus. We believe this. As it was with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, so will it be for the ungodly on the last day. As it was for Moses and Israel, so will it be for those who trust Christ on the last day. Those who receive God's wrath are those who bear the mark of the beast. They don't worship the Lord. They worship the things of this world. They trust in themselves and in earthly things. All who are not in Christ will drink from the cup of God's wrath on the last day. That's a significant picture, a significant reality. In the book of Jeremiah, the Lord instructs Jeremiah to give the nations a cup to drink filled with the wine of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 16 says, When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. In Psalm 75, 7 and 8, it says, It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Judgment is compared to drinking a cup filled with intoxicating drink. This is the cup that Christ drained for us on the cross, which is why we practice communion. And when we drink communion, we drink not from a cup of judgment, but from a cup of blessing. All this comes to a head in in two places. First, in, in the Gospels, with a bit of irony. James and John, two-thirds of Jesus' inner circle, come to him asking to sit by his side in glory. This is after the third time Jesus predicted his death. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He's referring to his cup, this cup of wrath. He's referring to this death that's coming. In, in other words, do you really want to share my fate? I don't think you get it. God's judgment is coming upon me. But I'm going to drink that cup. I'm going to become the cursed one. What makes James and John's request ironic is the arrogance of it. The cup of wrath Jesus is referring to is coming because of the arrogance of the ones who deserve it. They're concerned with being lifted up in praise. But Jesus is talking about being lifted up in their humiliation. This is what we deserve. And there are people who will not taste this cup of judgment because Jesus drank it down to its very dregs. Not a drop left for you to taste. N.T. Wright says, those who fall under judgment here in Revelation 16 are those who have been given every chance to repent and have refused. They have chosen to go down with the monsters rather than to suffer and be vindicated with the Lamb. In college, I lived in a house with seven other guys. Seven's an important number, right? Seven, seven. But for a time, I experienced my own plague of sorts in in this house. My my room was was downstairs beside a bathroom where toxic mold had been growing for years. The landlord's solution was to to cover the, the mold with paint. I don't think it really worked. 
The washer and dryer were also found in the first floor bathroom, the same bathroom. And and my best guess is that this is related. I I had numerous occasions taking showers in this bathroom where there was this blue goop that would seep in from from the the shower drain, about ankle deep. I don't know if that's good for me. It didn't feel like it was good for me. I didn't feel good about it, but it happened. And I didn't know what to do about it. And it didn't seem like my landlord knew what to do about it. And it didn't seem like he was going to actually get help. So there I was. During the winter months that year, I didn't have the votes for, from the rest of the house to turn on the heat. So we, we waited on turning on the heat, and it got cold. And you could say, I, I could have just worn more layers, and, and that's true, but it, wearing more layers doesn't help when you have a sinus infection. And especially when you've had a sinus infection going on two months, going for a third. And a sinus infection is really bad because when you have a sinus infection, you can't breathe. And so I was struggling to breathe. And you know what happens when you can't breathe? You can't sleep. And so I hadn't been sleeping well for two months. And I had toxic mold in my house. It was right beside my bedroom. And I had blue goop coming out of my shower. And that's to say nothing about the flies. (laughs) I remember walking out of that house one night while a bunch of guys were over watching a UNC basketball game. And one of the guys asked me where I was going because I think he noticed I had luggage in my hand. I said, I'm going home. I'm getting out of here. I enjoy being around those guys, but but I knew that none of them were going to take care of me as well as my mom would. (laughs) At least I had a chance there. I wanted to get well. I wanted to breathe again. And it wasn't happening there. I mean, literally, we had one guy who was maybe on my side and, and... he was so determined that he would turn on the, the oven and open up the door so that he could get heat in the house. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make to you is that you don't have to drink from the cup that, Je- that Jesus already drank for you. You don't have to stay in that place of suffering, of judgment. When Jesus has already drank from the cup for you, You don't have to resist when you can abide. In Revelation 16, 9 and 11 and in verse 21, the opportunity to repent is there. But those marked by the beast, they choose to curse God. Those who profess faith in Christ have peace with God. For those who have trusted Christ, we can be confident that you, you have peace with God. He's given it to you. But for those who haven't, Jesus has paid the price for you under the same conditions he paid the price for me. If you but choose to forsake the way of the beast and to walk in fellowship with God. Number five, in God's judgment, he will give you what you want. In God's judgment, he will give you over to the desires of your heart. What we see in God's wrath is that he eventually allows people to receive what they want. To those who submit to the beast, they become like beasts. Verse 2 says that those, these are those who had the mark of the beast and worship its image. They have submitted to the rule of the beast, and so they receive the destiny of the beast. And the fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom is plunged into darkness. 
You see this very thing happening in Romans 1. In Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. None of us can truly imagine a world where God is not holding things together because he's never experienced an existence where he he hasn't done it. We just think we can. We think we can exist in a world without God because we suppress the truth. We achieve and we don't thank God. We may even wonder what he did to deserve our thanks in the first place. But what happens when people who want a world without God get what they want? Imagine an entry-level employee says to the company owner, I can run this business without you. So the owner says, okay, do it. But first, the owner removes all of his equipment. Then he pushes all the company's profits into his personal bank account. He cuts ties with all of his current clients, refuses to provide any of his expertise, knowledge, and networks. He dissolves the company's tax status, and and on and on. He runs the thing into the ground. In other words, to take your assertion seriously... Let me remove every way you're currently relying on me. What we see unfold in these last three bowls is God finally bringing to account all the wickedness under Satan's evil regime, exposing all the lies that propagated the wicked systems and injustices he's propped up. I want to say this again. God is going to give us over to what we worship. What you have your heart set on being ruled by, you will get. You will get. So what are you surrendering to? Who do you serve? As we come to a close this morning, some of you may be thinking, okay, okay, but but why does this matter for me? Why does this matter for me? I mean, here's the thing. Maybe you picked up on this weeks ago. there's There's multiple judgment cycles There's going to be a final reckoning. You're aware of this. You know this is coming. But you say to yourself, I trust Jesus. So this doesn't really change anything for me. I'm good, right? I'm good, right? The Christian life is not meant for you to live on autopilot until the day you die, until the day Jesus returns, whichever comes first. Jesus, in fact, he even interjects on this. He says in in Revelation 16, 15, he says, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. The call on your life is not a kind of quiet, comfortable, passive existence. I mean, you think God's trying to wake people up while you're busy lulling yourself to sleep? You think that's what God's asking you to do? I know that we're all at at different places right now. Some of you need 
comfort. You need to hear that God is a God of comfort. And that's why I've asked you to consider who God is. Some of you need a wake-up call. You've grown complacent and you know it. That's why I wanted you to consider the call God's placed on us and the joy of our salvation. Some of you have experienced wickedness in your life and maybe you still do. You need the God of justice right now and to know that he empowers the weak in this world with the strength of his love. In all of this, I want you to stay ready. I want you to be alert. What's the point? What's God asking you right now? He's asking you to stay awake. The world you live in is filled with distractions and deceit, and it is compelling. And I'm asking you, do not buy it. Instead, delight in the one who has the world in his hands. The one whose mighty deeds have rescued us from wickedness and called us to be his people of peace. To start nudging others around you to say, hey, wake up. Wake up. The schemes of the evil one, they have no power here. They have no say on you. Hearing the judgment of God should lead you to rejoice, not to slump down. Hearing the judgment of God should jolt you into action, not to slumber. Hearing the judgment of God should remind you that you belong to the Father and He's asking you to stay ready, to be watchful, for the Lord is coming. Not in fear. We don't watch, we don't wait in fear, but in joy, because you know the heart of the one who is coming. And you're excited to live in the fullness of his peace. Brothers and sisters, let's be on guard as the day of the Lord draws near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have done a mighty thing in our midst. God, you have rescued us from sin and death. You have forgiven wickedness and rebellion. God, you are a God of reversals. And so God, I pray, I continue to pray for reversals this morning. I pray that you would keep us on guard, that you would keep us alert, ready to to respond and receive the things that you have done and to call other people into it. What an exciting and joyful thing that you have called us to God, if there is anyone here who has, not, who has not accepted you, who's not received you, received your provision in Jesus, God, I pray that, that they would talk to somebody this morning. God, that they would begin to have those conversations. And God, for those who are, who are gripped by you, who you hold as your people of peace, God, I pray that you would give us confidence and joy to, to walk in humility and peace. God, that we have peace right now. We have peace with you. We have peace with each other. And we can live in that reality. God, help us to do what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.